This is Richard Pothig reading from On the Sidewalks of New York. This is Chapter 12, A Time to Live, A Time to Die. The College of Worcester had chosen a president to match the new hopes which the end of the war had brought. Howard Lowry had a vision of higher education as it faced a post-war world dominated by research and technology. For Lowry, a liberal education was a life pursuit. It laid the foundation for living in a world where information and knowledge were continually expanding. The students, he believed, should have the skills to learn from and to engage in this dynamic world. Lowry brought to Worcester a unique plan for building on this premise. Independent study was meant to provide students with the skills necessary for continuing their inquiry into life and living it in a useful way. The research and the individual quest for excellence in a chosen field was the basis of the independent study program. Lowry also perceived it as a necessary component in preparing students for a graduate education. Soon after arriving at Worcester, I began to recognize the similarity between Howard Lowry and George Buttrick, my pastor at Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. Lowry provided a thread of continuity to my experience at MAPC. Both Buttrick and Lowry had great facility with the English language. They were exciting speakers. Both spoke with clarity and a commitment to their beliefs. The illustrations in their speeches shed light to guide you along the way. There was always substance in what they had to say. In the end, you felt better for having heard them. In polka language, I felt I had drawn aces back to back. The preaching of George Buttrick had deepened my commitment to the Christian faith. Buttrick made the connection between faith and living a meaningful life in the world. Lowry was now making the connection between education and life. Life was a continuing learning process, one which never ended. Whenever Lowry spoke in chapel, he always laid down a challenge, the same commitment Buttrick called for in his preaching. Lowry conveyed in how you were to develop your education. Education was for service in the world. It was not only for your own development. It was to be beneficial to the larger world. It was also apparent in Lowry's thinking that education was a tool for deepening and broadening your faith. Most students came to Worcester with a Sunday school understanding of religion. Many of the premises upon which their religious faith was founded would be challenged by the methods of scientific inquiry, which were a mainstay of education at Worcester. We were continually reminded that science was not in competition with religion, that they were sister disciplines in understanding life. The seal of the College of Worcester spoke of this unity, science and religion from the same fountainhead. I came to Worcester with an open understanding of religion. My religious education at Goodwill Sunday School and Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church fell within the liberal stream of biblical interpretation. George Buttrick's preaching had opened up the scriptures as a guide to life, not as a taskmaster. The church school teachers at Madison Avenue, who were usually Union Seminary students, interns, drew 
heavily on the biblically critical view being taught at the seminary. I had absorbed biblical criticism into my faith experience. That I had accepted this biblical criticism became apparent in my first religious course at Worcester. The Bible was explored from all angles, as literature, as history, as archaeology, as politics, as the faith journey of a particular people. It was dissected and critically assessed. This disturbed some students who had come from much more conservative backgrounds. It was no threat to my faith perspective. It only deepened my appreciation of the quest for an illumined life. Scientific inquiry was to go hand in hand with religious inquiry to provide foundations for the understanding and living of life. With each passing week, I was finding the prospect of a liberal education more exciting. I knew I had made the right decision. I also knew I had to make it through Worcester, even though I was running against the grain of circumstances. There was little support from my quest from the larger Pothic family. The same feelings my father expressed about education were part of the general attitude of the family. My Aunt Helen, who tended to be the opinion maker in the family, saw my desire for a college education as unsupportive of my family's immediate needs. In this, she was maintaining a traditional view of a son in a working-class family. As long as he was single, he was to help the family pay the bills. All of my other cousins had gone to work after high school. None of them had used the GI Bill for college when they mustered out of the armed services. I also believe my Aunt Helen had a grudge against my mother, whom she recognized as having aspirations beyond her working-class roots. The return to Worcester was absorbing all my energy. The returning veterans and the first post-war class of freshmen were putting pressure on men's campus housing. This was evident the minute I had hit the campus. Canardon Lodge had been opened for men's students. The Canardon building was divided into seven distinct sections. Worcester's version of fraternities was built around the physical plan of the Canardon dormitory. Each section of Canardon was a separate section or fraternity. An eighth section was located in a separate on-campus residence. Many of the returning veterans moved back into their older sections. They looked forward to pledging the incoming class to their sections. Married students were allotted quarters and barracks built to house the Navy program during the war. They were located behind Scoville Hall Biology Building. I was assigned to a private residence, the Bahodegi home on Wayne Avenue. The Bahodegis took in boarders. There were five of us assigned to the Bahodegis, all first-year students. Three lived in the attic loft, and two of us had separate rooms. I soon became aware of the advantage I had had in my early start in February of 1945. I had oriented myself to Worcester and to campus life. I had friends among the upper-class students. I escaped most of the treatment handed out to the incoming students, one of which was the requirement to wear a beanie. I continued my work in Holden Dining Hall as one of the kitchen crew. This covered my food costs. I began exploring other jobs to pay my housing costs. Ellis Dry Cleaning and Laundry in downtown Worcester was looking for an agent on campus. There was little competition since the returning GIs didn't need the money 
and a new freshman usually had family support. So I took the Elliott job, which meant gathering the laundry, redistributing it when it was returned, and collecting on the bills. During the previous spring, I had done well in a history course. A professor who was past retirement was a dull teacher. I survived his teaching and decided to try again. In the fall, I continued my interest in history and signed up for a course with Eileen Dunham, the head of the history department. Dunham, who was a Canadian in background, was an inspiring teacher. She was consumed with her subject. As soon as she got behind her desk and opened her notes, she went full throttle in her delivery. She brought excitement to whatever period of history she was teaching. She told stories and threw in anecdotes to spice up her presentation. My appreciation of social movements took shape under her tutelage. There was power in being able to grasp current events from a long view. I sensed my own place in the scheme of history. There was much to keep me busy in the fall term. The orientation program helped me get acquainted with my class, the class of 1948. Pressure to join a section began early in the term. The men at Bahodegis decided that they would join a section as a group, believing that they would have some influence. Third section, nicknamed the rabbis, made a special effort to pledge us. Two of the Bahodegi boys were musicians. Gene Markey had a trumpet and Dave Call a trombone. Third section was known for its good singers and its preachers. We ultimately moved into third section. In late October, I received word from my mother that she had to re-enter St. Francis Hospital. Her doctor decided that she needed special care. One of her lungs had collapsed and she was to be under observation. I was deeply concerned, but there was little I could do. My father continued his two jobs, his regular job at Sunshine Biscuits and another in a restaurant. Erna continued in junior high, and after school she visited with my Uncle Paul's wife, May. They lived near us on Bruckner Boulevard. December was approaching. I considered not returning home for the Christmas holidays. It was an expensive round trip, and every dollar counted. I would find work around the campus during the holidays. Early in the second week, I received a hurried call from my mother. My father had had an accident. He had fallen from a ladder while changing a light bulb at Sunshine Biscuits and fractured his skull. She had come out of the hospital to take care of him. I packed my bags with two weeks to go before Christmas break and headed back to New York. I was filled with remorse on the train ride back. Could I have made the difference if I had stayed at home? How bad was my father's injury? Who would pay the bills now? What had this done to my mother's already fragile condition? Who would look after Erna? What was my future? I looked out at the snow-covered countryside and thought this will be a dark Christmas. In contrast, all around me there was an upbeat feeling. The country was celebrating its first peacetime Christmas in five years. Soldiers on the train were returning for family reunions. Everywhere people were looking forward to the future. By the time the train arrived in Penn Station, I had made up my mind. 
I would keep my thoughts together and not lose perspective. I would gauge the situation and do what I could do at home. I would make my decision after the holidays. My mother was visibly weak. Her leaving the hospital had been a bad move. She told me that something had to be done immediately. There was no other way. I visited my father in the hospital. The x-ray showed a fracture on the right side of the head and a scar on the right side of the brain. The doctors were still not certain of the consequences. They said the injury would probably bring on epileptic seizures. They knew he would not be able to return to work. We would have to apply for workman's compensation for total disability benefits. I spent the holidays trying to bring some stability to the situation. We got my mother back into the hospital. We waited to see what the prognosis for my father would be. He had had an epileptic seizure. The doctors prescribed Dilton and dismissed him from the hospital. The doctors scheduled him to visit a specialist regularly. His scar had healed, but he would be permanently impaired. He, he could expect to have epileptic seizures without warning. The Dilton was meant to temper the seizures. We began the procedure for workman's compensation. This would provide some income. In early January, we made our first trip into Manhattan to visit a neurological specialist. The Workman's Compensation Board had assigned him to my father's case. Classes at Worcester had already begun. The same question I had faced a year earlier was before me again. Should I stay home, look for a job, and do what I could to keep things going in the family? I had already assessed what this would mean. What kind of job should I look for? What was I prepared to do? How much could I expect to earn without an education? I had experience in two fields and neither of them appealed to me. I could return to sales, but even that would require a college education to achieve any kind of responsible position. I had seen the salesmen of best company who had spent 30 to 40 years at their jobs. It was honest work, but I recognized the dead end which selling would hold for me. Working for Fred Waring had been exciting, but one had to have a penchant for living an unorthodox lifestyle. One also had to be well-connected to get anywhere in the entertainment field. Neither of these jobs suited my temperament. The past fall at Worcester had challenged me. There were many doors opening. There was a world of ideas I had never thought about before. So many exciting things happening in the world. I had to explore them. I went to see my mother in the hospital. We discussed the family situation. My father was home. He was healing from his accident. He was taking his medicine regularly. He was getting around the house and the neighborhood. There were neighbors who would look in on him if he had any trouble. Erna was able to help him with the housework after school. My uncle Paul and Aunt May were only a few blocks away and would look in on them. I told her I was going back to Worcester. She knew that was already on my mind. She did not dispute my decision. She only wished I could stay a little longer. Classes had already begun. I would have to make up for the work that I had already missed in the last semester. I told her I would be home as soon as school ended and would work in New York during the summer. She resigned herself to my leaving. 
I arrived in Worcester and worked to make up for the classes I had missed. I was not comfortable with the situ situation I had left behind. I worried about the possibility of my father's seizures. There was no way to know when they would happen. I thought about Erna and the responsibility that fell to her and my, and my mother. And how long could she hold on? She had been in and out of hospitals more regularly in the past three years. There was no way to turn back the disease. It was only the hope of keeping her as comfortable as possible in her last years. All these thoughts made me work with greater intensity. The past semester had made me more aware of the different life I was living at Worcester. My first semester at Worcester was a novel for me. It was wartime. Life on campus was abnormal, with so few men and many women students. The attention of the campus was focused on world events, the death of Franklin Roosevelt, the swearing-in of Harry Truman as president, the defeat of Nazi Germany, and the end of the European War. I'd given little thought to the contrast between the life of my family in New York and life from which most people at Worcester had come. In the fall, the situation took on more realistic dimensions. I became more aware of the different social backgrounds of fellow students. As I became acquainted with my housemates at Pahotegis, the differences became more evident. They had come from suburban or small-town high schools. They lived in family homes with fathers who had professional, business, or white-collar positions. The politics of most of my classmates were Republican. In our initial getting acquainted and time at Pahotegis, the differences between us were of little importance. The situation took on a new dimension when we moved into third section in January. My democratic sympathies, which I had never thought of seriously before, became more apparent in the larger mix of third section. Many of the returning veterans who had been previously students at Worcester had Republican loyalties. Within this larger context, my democratic leanings became the flashpoint for heated discussions. The arguments often ended good-naturedly, since I was a section brother, but they recognized I had another point of view. It was chalked up to my being a New Yorker. At Easter, I had an invitation for one of my third section brothers, Malcolm Boggs, to spend the vacation at his home in downstate Ohio. His mother had died while he was in high school, and he lived with his father and stepmother in Mount Gilead. Malcolm was one of those most sympathetic to my liberal point of view. He had been urging me to run for the junior seat on the student cabinet. The Boggs home was a pleasant white colonial house in the midst of Mount Gilead. It was a great respite for me. Late in the afternoon of the second day, I received a call from Fred Stead, an, an older third section mate who had stayed in Worcester during the break. He told me a telegram had arrived from New York. He read it to me over the phone. Richard, mother failing. Please come home, Dad. I told Malcolm I had to get home as quickly as possible. The train would take too long. Malcolm's father told me that he would get a flight out of Columbus Airport. I didn't have the money for an airplane ticket. Without comment, Mr. Boggs had me pack up and drove me to the Columbus Airport. They had checked on the first flight to New York. I had my ticket. I told them I would repay him as soon as I got back to Worcester. It was April 1st. It was my first time to fly. I arrived in New York at night. I made it to the Bronx as quickly as I could. My father and sister were waiting for me. 
I went with my father immediately to St. Francis Hospital. It was late, and everything was quiet on all the floors. The night nurse knew why we were there. My mother was in a room with two other women. Against the whiteness of the pillow, her face looked sallow and severely drawn. I could only see in her the pain she had suffered all the days that I had known her. She looked at me with sorrow in her eyes. She knew her time had come. I'm disgusted were her only words. The words rang in my ears. She wanted so much to live and to enjoy life. The years of suffering with her disease and struggling with her weak body, 25 years, had finally taken their toll. My words froze within me. I felt utterly helpless. I could only hold her hand. I turned for her, unable to control my tears, and walked from the room drawing my father along with me. There was a little chapel down the hall and we went in. My father was not used to praying, but I told him to sit and think about mom. I thought about her life, her goodness to the family, her dedication to my religious upbringing, her physical pain, and in her pain, her faithfulness to God. I let these thoughts be my prayer to God. We went home in the darkness. In the morning, our second-floor neighbor, Mrs. Berger, looked, knocked at the door at 7:30. They had a telephone call from my father from for my father from St. Francis. Already knowing the news, he took the call. He came back visibly shaken. Mom died in the night. We have to make arrangements for our body. I called Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. George Herring, the funeral director, would take care of the arrangements of St. Francis and for the funeral. We would have the funeral in the chapel at Madison Avenue Church. I went over to St. Francis to speak to the nursing sister in charge. She was consoling and spoke comforting words to me about my mother. I had made arrangements for my mother's body. I went back to my mother's room. There was now one empty bed, already very neatly made for the next tuberculosis patient. Both women who had shared the room with her told me how sorry they were for my mother's death. Mary, the woman in the bed next to my mother's, told me how much she would miss her. In her deep Irish brogue, Mary told me how much my mother had been a comfort and a strength to her. Even in her own pain, she had poise and a sense of humor. Searching for words which I never had a chance to speak to my mother, I asked Mary, how did she feel about me, about my going away and leaving the family? Oh, Mary said, she was so proud of you. She so wanted you to become a minister. That's what she talked about. Thank you, Mary, I said, turning away from her bed toward the door so she would not see my tears. Thank you. 
God bless you, Mary said as I left the room. We buried my mother in St. Michael's Cemetery in the same plot with her mother and father. I stayed to get things in order at home. Classes had resumed at Worcester. I told my father I would be home in two months. I went down to Penn Station and got on the Broadway Limited back to Worcester.